The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to episode 309 of the History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you chose to spend some time with us today. I hope you are thriving. Wow, what a day. We are going to present to you an episode from our friends at Storybound, who are turning the old-time radio experience into something new for the podcast age. Disha Filyaw is going to read from her collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Does that title... Not just send a little shiver down your spine. What a great title. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Black Women, Sex, and the Black Church. I am in on that. Bring me the news, Disha Filia, or because it's fiction, let me into this world. Fired by your imagination. Disha Filia grew up in Florida. She studied economics at Yale. She got a master's in teaching after that. She wrote a book called Co-Parenting 101, Helping Your Kids Thrive in Two Households After Divorce, which she wrote in collaboration with her ex-husband. That's an interesting project, an interesting approach to take to an interesting and important project. And then she started writing fiction, and her book was a finalist for the National Book Award. Juicy goodness bursts from every page. Said one critic, tender, fierce, luminous, these stories sneak inside you and take root, said another. A bona fide literary treasure, deeply moving and multifaceted characters. I'm just reading from all the many good reviews. And proudly black and beautiful, black women, sex, and the black church is what the title or what the cover promises. But notice this isn't called the sex lives of church ladies, but the secret lives. Sex is interesting, of course, but so is the gravitational pull of sex and intimacy and relationships, the way that sex can pull apart friendships and shift alliances and turn confident people into people with something to hide, unless it's the other way around. Sometimes a secret activity or just a secret itself can lead to power. So that's the question for us, the one that Disha Filia is here to answer. Just what secret lives are these church ladies living? Mm, I love this. And I'm glad to have the chance to have the story here today with all its story-bound treatment, the introduction, the music, and everything else. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get to that, we're going to have a few snippets from the world of list of list. <laughs> From the world of literature, the history of literature, we're going to have a few snippets from some writers and their diaries. I'm working on an episode about writer's block, which the president himself, Mike Palindrome, and I will be diving into very soon. And my research turned up a few passages worth sharing. A lot of them, actually, but I've selected three for you today. We'll hear from Virginia Woolf, Iris Murdoch, and Franz Kafka diving deep into their letters and personal diaries, and then Disha Filia after this. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Writer's Block. We will have a whole episode on this coming up soon, but let's hear from some writers describing it in their own words, the agony and maybe the ecstasy of writer's block. Well, there's not much of that. There's the ecstasy of writing, of creating, blocked by the agony of despair and frustration and procrastination and fear, the self-doubt, the tyranny of the empty page. We found all of these, these excerpts thanks to an article by our friends at LitHub. We're also teamed up with The Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com, and LitHub Radio. Okay, we got that out of the way. We don't have to do that at the end now. Okay, our first is from Virginia Woolf. This is from A Writer's Diary. Friday, April 8th, 10 minutes to 11 a.m., 1921. And I ought to be writing Jacob's Room, and I can't. And instead, I shall write down the reason why I can't. This diary being a kindly, blank-faced old confidant. Well, you see, I'm a failure as a writer. I'm out of fashion. Old. Shan't do any better. Have no headpiece. The spring is everywhere. My book out prematurely and nipped. A damp firework. Now the solid grain of fact is that Ralph sent my book out to the Times for review without date of publication in it. Thus, a short notice is scrambled through to be in, quote, on Monday at latest, end quote, put in an obscure place, rather scrappy, complimentary enough, but quite unintelligent. I mean by that that they don't see that I'm after something interesting. So that makes me suspect that I'm not. And thus I can't get on with Jacob. Oh, and Lytton's book is out and takes up three columns. Praise, I suppose. I do not trouble to sketch this in order, or how my temper sank and sank till for half an hour I was as depressed as I ever am. I mean, I thought of never writing any more. Save reviews. What depresses me is the thought that I have ceased to interest people. At the very moment when, by the help of the press, I thought I was becoming more myself. One does not want an established reputation. 
such as I think I was getting as one of our leading female novelists, I have still, of course, to gather in all the private criticism, which is the real test. When I have weighed this, I shall be able to say whether I am interesting or obsolete. Anyhow, I feel quite alert enough to stop if I'm obsolete. I shan't become a machine, unless a machine for grinding articles. As I write, there rises somewhere in my head that queer and very pleasant sense of something which I want to write, my own point of view. I wonder, though, whether this feeling that I write for half a dozen instead of fifteen hundred will pervert this, make me eccentric. No, I think not. But as I said, one must face the despicable vanity which is at the root of all this niggling and haggling. I think the only prescription for me is to have a thousand interests. If one is damaged, to be able instantly to let my energy flow into Russian or Greek or the press or the garden or people or some activity disconnected with my own writing. End quote. That's, oh, that's Virginia Woolf. I have ceased to interest people, she thinks. She has some reason to think. Her reasons seem to be a little contorted to me. It's the fear that she has, the insecurity. One wonders if she knew that a a hundred years later, scholars would happily read every word she wrote. She would be of interest, not just to the six or to the fifteen hundred buying her works, but to millions of readers around the world. Would those people, that is, us, would we matter to her? Posterity? Do writers care about posterity? Who was the writer? Was it Wyndham Lewis who said, what did posterity ever do for me? <laughs> or are the writers seeking to connect with living souls, contemporaries? It's a fascinating question. You start to think that these questions could be debilitating for a writer. And you wonder if a writer who can be debilitated by one thing would find something else to be debilitated by. It might be something deeper. And the excuse might be just that, a rationalization of a deeper problem. Let's turn now to the mind of another brilliant British woman. Came a little bit later, Iris Murdoch, writing about 20 years after Virginia Woolf in this one. This is from World War II. This is from a 1943 letter she wrote to Frank Thompson. Do I write? I've written only three poems and no prose in the last year. Just before that, I wrote quite a little prose. My father got one short story published for me in the Manchester Guardian and a selection of my letters, without warning me, in the New Statesman. But at the moment I'm writing nothing, nor do I feel the urge to write. I'm suffering stagnation militaris. A change of air and proximity to the Germans will probably wake me up again. But the truth is, I haven't much to write about. I have a conventional mind formed along wickamical lines. Also, I'm very little of an introvert. Only when writing to you or to my brother do I make an effort at introspection. And unless you are an introvert, you do not have the vision 
to look into other people's minds. And without that, you cannot write as it is the fashion to write today. Mind you, I think the psychological novel has had its day. Soviet authors, I believe, are searching around for a new line of advance. Ehrenberg, when he tries straight fiction as opposed to satire, has gone back to a style as simple as Defoe's. Personally, I think Tolstoy and Chekhov went as far into the minds of our fellow men as it is profitable or seemly to go. Gorky is, to me, an ideal novelist in this respect. No, if I had the ability to tell a story, I should not allow you to mar it with psychological interludes. But the truth is, Yerushka, I have a very shallow mind, and I've been skating round these last four years on the crust of it. If, when, I return to England, I look to you and other comrades to re-educate and rehabilitate me in some measure. What nonsense. This war should be developing my mind. I don't know. I don't know what's happening to me. If I get through this European war, I want to go to China. And then on, wherever the next phase takes place. Because this war, in which we are now engaged, may have its uneasy lulls and armistices. Peace we shall not know until the United States of the world has been achieved. And if I get time... Wandering from here to there, I may write some of the more memorable things I have seen, but about the conflicts in my own mind, not. They had far better end with the unseemly clay that bounds them. Oh, I have a very shallow mind, says Ms. Murdoch, when the rest of the world thinks shallow mind. Yours is one of the deepest minds around. One of the deeper minds we've ever had access to, but sometimes geniuses hold themselves to a higher standard. We lose books because of that, but maybe they're books that are worth losing, I guess. Anyway, I love the humility here and the reminder that writing in a time of great upheaval, a war, World War II, with bombings and death and destruction, the existential stakes of being in Great Britain with the Nazis pounding at the door. It's hard to think, let alone think organized thoughts, let alone write a sustained work of prose, but living through the experience provides great expansion of the mind and of human understanding, for better or worse, and great fiction comes as a result of that friction. Sounds like a phrase I'm trying to coin there. Fiction coming from friction. Hmm. Maybe great fiction comes as a result, but maybe it comes a little later. Not during the war, in the aftermath. Okay, our last look is at Franz Kafka. Speaking of friction, he's, he's a man at friction with himself. I love Kafka so much, it's almost hard for me to read his diaries. I feel like he's recording my mind as if I'm not as special as I thought. I think I have all these ideas, these Morbid ideas, all gloom. I'm an expert in gloom. I think that as if my gloom is special. And then Kafka arrives, and I see that not only was he as gloomy, he was gloomier. He was gloomier first, and his gloom surpassed mine. He was a genius of gloom. And I'm a mere amateur. I feel a little eerie as if he's somehow read my mind, enhanced my thoughts with his own genius, and written them for me to discover, to let me know 
that he was not only first, but he was better. And I'll never catch up. Okay, so here we go. Franz Kafka from his diaries, 1910 to 1923. 20 January, the end of writing. When will it catch me up again? In what a bad state I am going to meet F. The clumsy thinking that immediately appears when I give up my writing. My inability to prepare for the meeting. Whereas last week I could hardly shake off all the ideas it aroused in me. May I enjoy the only conceivable profit I can have from it. Better sleep. Black flags. How badly I even read, and with what malice and weakness I observe myself. Apparently, I cannot force my way into the world, but lie quietly, receive, spread out within me what I have received, and then step calmly forth. 29 January. Again tried to write, virtually useless. The past two days went early to bed, about ten o'clock, something I haven't done for a long time now. Free feeling during the day, partial satisfaction, more useful in the office, possible to speak to people. Severe pain in my knee now. 30 January. The old incapacity. Hardly ten days interrupted in my writing and already cast aside. Once again, Prodigious efforts stand before me. You have to dive down, as it were, and sink more rapidly than which sinks in advance of you. 7 February. Complete standstill. Unending torments. 11 March. How time flies another ten days, and I have achieved nothing. It doesn't come off. A page now and then is successful, but I can't keep it up. The next day, I am powerless. 13 March. An evening. At six o'clock, lay down on the sofa. Slept until about eight. Couldn't get up. Waited for the clock to strike. And in my sleepiness, missed hearing it. Got up at nine o'clock. Didn't go home for supper, nor to Max's either, where there was a gathering tonight. Reasons? Lack of appetite, fear of getting back late in the evening, but above all, the thought that I wrote nothing yesterday, that I keep getting farther and farther from it, and am in danger of losing everything I have laboriously achieved these past six months. Provided proof of this by writing one and a half wretched pages of a new story that I have already decided to discard. Occasionally, I feel an unhappiness that almost dismembers me, and at the same time, am convinced of its necessity and of the existence of a goal to which one makes one's way by undergoing every kind of unhappiness. 23 March. Incapable of writing a line. Oh, Franz. Oh, dear Mr. Kafka, we know how you struggled. We know how wretched you were. We know how you tried to make your way to the necessary goal, which only can only get there by undergoing every kind of unhappiness. We know how hard you tried. 
and we love you for it. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Let's wipe away some of this gloom, and then we'll come back with Disha Filia, who was not blocked. Let's hope she's not blocked now either. We could use more stories like this one. Disha Filia from the Storybound Project after this. Welcome to another episode of Storybound. This week, we have author Disha Filia, who will be reading from her book, The Secret Lies of Church Ladies, her collection of short stories about black women, sex, and the black church, featuring four generations of characters grappling with who they want to be in the world, caught as they are between the church's double standards and their own needs and passions. Disha Filia's writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, Brevity, and elsewhere. Her book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, was a 2020 National Book Award finalist. Disha will be accompanied by Glasses for an original remix of their songs, People, and I'll Never Change Your Mind. Without further ado, let's start the show. Hi, this is Disha Filia, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm going to be reading a story titled How to Make Love to a Physicist from my collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, Nine Stories About Black Women, Sex, and the Black Church. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Disha Filia, who will be reading from her book, The Secret Lies of Church Ladies. Joined by an original composition by Glasses. How to Make Love to a Physicist How do you make love to a physicist? You do it on Pi Day. Pi is a constant, also irrational. But the groundwork is laid months in advance. First, you must meet him in passing at a STEAM conference. As a middle school art teacher, you are there to ensure the A, arts, are truly represented and not lost amid the giants of science, technology, engineering, math. But as a black woman, you are there playing count the Negroes as you do at every conference. He is number 12 at a conference of hundreds. On the first day of the conference, you notice him coming down the convention center escalator as you ride up. You try to guess which letter of the acronym he is there to represent. His face and baby dreads give you equal parts poet and high school math teacher. On the second day of the conference, you see him again at a breakout session, arts integration and global citizenry. He's chatting with the presenter, assistant number 13, before the session begins. From what you overhear, you glean that they know each other from their undergrad days in Atlanta in the early 90s. 
they have a lot of people in common at their respective alma maters. They promise to catch up again before the conference is over. You notice she's wearing a wedding ring and he is not. As you're leaving the breakout session, he notices you noticing him. His smile is brilliant. You smile back. He falls in step with you, extends his hand, and introduces himself. He says, Eric Terman. But you hear Eric Sermon, and your eyes widen and then narrow because you think he's joking in a weirdly esoteric way. No, Eric Terman, he says again, laughing. Not the guy from EPMD. Got it, you say. I'm Lyra James, not to be confused with Rick James. Eric chuckles. But often confused with Lyra, home to one of the brightest stars in the night sky. The compliment takes you by surprise, and you're probably doing a shitty job of hiding it. So you're a science teacher? He is not a science teacher, nor is he a poet. He's a physicist and chair of the Education Programs Committee for the American Physics Society. You make small talk about arts integration and global citizenry. He asks what brings you to the conference, and you tell him you teach middle school art, sculpting, printmaking, painting, fiber arts, ceramics. He asks if you will tell him more over lunch, and you do. And then the conversation continues over dinner. You learn what the chair of the Education Programs Committee for the American Physics Society does. And then in the bar of the conference hotel, over drinks. And then on a sofa in the lobby. You each share your top five MCs. You debate Scarface versus Rakim for number one. You notice his thick eyelashes, large hands, and a little scar next to his right eyebrow. When he lifts his newsboy cap a few times to scratch his head, you see the baby dreads are neat and well-moisturized. He tells you about his job, the one that pays the bills, where he develops astrophysics and cosmology theories and conducts research to test those theories. I aspire to be an astronaut as a side hustle, but NASA won't return her brother's calls. He shrugs. What about you? Me? Oh, I just have the one job. And your aspirations? You take a deep breath and spill your dreams. You know that school LeBron James started? I want to start one like that. A bunch of them, actually. All over the country. But I'll start with one. Serving entire families. That's really the key, you know. He knows. And then before you know it, it's after midnight and you're both still wearing your conference lanyards and together you're solving all of public education's problems, but for want of an end to systemic racism, abolishment of the current system of school funding, and a few billion dollars. Eric has pulled out his phone, made a few calculations, recorded the recommendations you've given him of artists, works of art, books, public school advocacy programs. He is curious and he's listening. At 2.13 a.m., he says, Well, you are refreshing. 
and you feel anything but because those French 75s you had at the bar have made you drowsy and because it's 2.13. But you want him to keep talking, to keep listening. Maybe invite him to come up? No, too soon. You don't think he's a serial killer, that's not it. It's that you don't want him to think that you're that kind of woman, the kind your mother warned you not to be, so you have not been. You are 42. Maybe ask him to meet for breakfast in the morning then? No, too presumptuous. Your eyes must have glazed over as you debated yourself because he says, I better let you get some rest. I really enjoy talking to you. And you both stand and stretch, but then you just stand there, looking at each other, not leaving. I hope I'm not being too presumptuous, but would you like to meet for breakfast? How do you make love to a physicist? On the flight home from the conference, you tally all the things you have in common. You're tired of people asking why you're still single. You care about children, but don't want any of your own. Fall is your favorite season. You're not a fan of Tyler Perry, and you're tired of people insisting you become one. You both have terrible vision and had to navigate your childhood being teased. Your glass is so thick you can see the future. Was a perennial favorite. The first Aunt Viv is your favorite. In the case of Prince versus Michael Jackson, you got Prince. You took all your meals with him for the rest of the conference and talked for hours and hours, but left so many things unsaid. Like how you had a high school sweetheart and a college sweetheart and a grad school sweetheart. How men chose you and you devoted to the relationships, but never quite felt at home in your body with them and understanding your therapist has helped you to articulate. You didn't tell him how you stayed until those men decided to leave you for women more at home in their bodies, more sure of themselves, prettier. You didn't tell him that, as corny and cliched as it sounds, you're more accustomed to speaking through your art. Paintings and sketches you framed and gave as gifts or framed and hung in your own house. But these days, you mostly just pour yourself into your students. It's safer that way. You didn't tell him how, one by one over the decades, you'd lost all your good girlfriends to marriage and motherhood, your friendships reduced to children's birthday parties, and the rare girls' night out. You didn't tell him that aside from the occasional online dating fling, plus some fumbling around with a childhood friend when he's between women he would actually date, you're celibate for months at a time. Later, your therapist will ask why any of those things needed to be said to a man you just met. You know she has a point, but you have no answer other than maybe you're the kind of woman who should come with a warning, a disclaimer. If Eric had withheld even a fraction of the things you withheld, that would be a lot of stuff. By the time your plane touches down, you've resolved that you will never know the real him or if he was even sincere. At baggage claim, you'll decide that it had just been the excitement of the moment and that he'd get back to his life and forget all about you. And you should try to do the same. So you delete his number from your phone. 
That night, when you are back home in your own bed, you send your colleagues in the math and science departments a long email detailing your desire to collaborate with them in the coming school year. Why can't we just be living in the here and now? The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from the artist Glasses. It's G-L-A-S-Y-S. And now for a commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Disha Filia and Glasses. And now we return from our break. How do you make love to a physicist? You take out your charcoal and sketch his face from memory. You tell your therapist about him and how he didn't forget you, but you're allowing his phone calls to go unanswered and leaving his text unread. Because you're not good at stuff like this. Stuff like what? Your therapist asked. Men, it never works out. But you've sketched his face and told me about him. Why? Because we had a great moment, but that's all it was. Then why is he still texting you? Just being nice. She tilts her head in that girl-please way she does right before she challenges you. She asks, is this another example of you talking yourself out of potentially good things? How do you make love to a physicist? You continue reading his text messages even though you don't respond to them. He's been texting for weeks, undaunted. He asks how you're doing, tells you how he's doing and what he's doing. He asks how you're doing, asks how you're doing, asks how you're doing, tells you how he's doing and what he's doing. He's presented his proposal to his board for an arts and science summer camp and family retreat. He thanks you for the inspiration. One Sunday after church, while you are at your mother's for dinner, he texts you a picture of a deep orange and red sunset with the caption, best scattering of light rays ever. You don't realize you're smiling until your mother asks, why are you smiling? She sounds more suspicious than curious. And you wonder when she last saw you smiling, this woman who insists on sending you home every week with enough leftovers for 10 people, then asks when you're going to lose some weight so you can meet a man. When you go back to school to set up your classroom for the new year, there's a package from Eric in your box in the faculty mailroom. You wonder how he knew where to find you, then you remember the name of your school was printed on your conference lanyard. He has sent you Overview, a new perspective of Earth, a collection of more than 200 stunning, high-definition satellite photos of Earth that focus on how people have altered the planet. The collection is named for the overview effect, the sensation of overwhelm, awe, and new perspective astronauts report upon looking down at Earth as a whole. An aerial view of a planned community in suburban Florida is a colorful mosaic. A shot of retired military and government aircraft in the aircraft boneyard at Davis Monthan Air Force Base resembles a collection of Native American arrowheads. 
tulip fields in the Netherlands look like fiber art. You display the book prominently in your class library. You send Eric a text message. Thank you for the book. It's wonderful. Then you respond to his last text, which was about his board approving his summer camp proposal with full funding. Congratulations on getting funding, you write. And he replies, you're welcome and thank you. That night, you read overview cover to cover. And the next night, you start painting again. You stay up late, getting your rhythm back. The weekend comes and you call him because you're really not a fan of texting anyway. And because maybe it's time. He answers right away. He doesn't ask what took you so long. He's happy to hear from you. And you're both breathless. You talk about his summer camp proposal, about what you're each making for dinner, and what your weekend plans are. You talk about the new Toni Morrison documentary and what she meant to each of you. You talk about loss. You continue to talk daily, to have virtual dates thanks to video calls. And they're better than any real date you've been on. You binge watch TV shows together, cook together, drink wine, and watch each other do laundry. You talk for days and nights and nights that turn into mornings. Sometimes you wake before dawn and he's still there, his sleeping face filling your phone screen. Then you settle again, your breathing in sync with his, and you drift off. How do you make love to a physicist? Ask him if he believes in God. Ask him if he thinks it's possible to reconcile science and religion. Physics principles support the notion of God because they tell us that you can't create something from nothing, he says. Something must have created all of this, unless you believe that we have always existed, that there's no Big Bang, no beginning point to the universe. I don't know what the mechanism is, but it's some higher power. All that energy had to come from somewhere. Oh, I assumed you were an atheist. Even Einstein wasn't an atheist. He talked about God all the time. Now, he didn't believe in a God that was concerned with human behavior, which is the church's obsession and the reason it uses guilt and shame to enforce Christianity. You don't think God cares about how we treat each other and the planet? I think that's the most important thing, but human beings are capable of doing that outside of the purview of the church. I've studied the Bible cover to cover, so so much hinges on translation and interpretation. I grew up Catholic, and I love the ritual of it all, but I've come to understand that belief in a personal God is not essential, not for me. You ask, what about heaven? But what you really want to ask is, what about hell? What about it? Heaven, getting into it, avoiding the alternative is the whole point of living right, isn't it? Your mother speaks longingly of Judgment Day and the final accounting of who's allowed past the pearly gates, certain that God's accounting will mirror hers. 
It will be a very small number, she's fond of saying. Only those who walk the straight and narrow path shall see the face of God. And you realize that if God were to welcome everyone into heaven, your mother would abandon Christianity immediately. You don't know how to answer Eric's question about heaven without sounding like you're quoting a fairy tale about good and evil, reward and punishment. You take a moment to soak it all in. You think of your mother and the small version of God she clings to, the only version you've ever known, and the one you're afraid to let go of. Then you think of how your daily calls with Eric are a kind of ritual, and how when you finally meet up again, it could be a kind of consecration. You are thrilled and terrified at the prospect. Terrified because all you've ever known of religion is that it demands more than you can ever give. I guess a person could have heaven right here on earth, you say. I do, Eric says. Every time I see you smile or hear you talk about your students, and even when you're quiet and painting or just folding towels. Heaven is me folding towels? Okay, maybe it's you folding fitted sheets. Miracles abound. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from the artist Glasses. That's G-L-A-S-Y-S. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Disha Filia and Glasses. And now for our final chapter. I'll never change your heart. I'll never change your heart. Is this a waste of time? How do you make love to a physicist? You invite him to visit in the spring for your first solo art show at a local gallery. It will be a collection of colorful abstract paintings influenced by your reading of Overview, Rumi, and the Quran, and your rereading of Morrison's Song of Solomon. You title the show Whatever I Say About Love, a line from Rumi's The Masavni. You're painting now more than you ever have. The show is still three months away, and already you're imagining your mother wandering around the gallery, muttering under her breath, what is that supposed to be? The way she did when you lived at home and she'd barge into your bedroom slash studio unannounced. You never gave her your framed work as a gift. You stuck with perfume and jewelry. You ask your therapist if it would be wrong not to invite your mother to the show. She answers your question with a question. Do you want her there? If I'm honest, the answer is no. 
then don't invite her. You're silent, and after a moment, she asks, how do you feel when you hear me say that? Frightened? What are you afraid of? Everything. How do you make love to a physicist? You start to have sex dreams about him, very, very detailed sex dreams. For the first time in your life, you crave sex. For the first time, you are curious about a man's body, about how you will feel above and beneath him. But then you remember the sex you've had and how you had to disappear into yourself to endure it. How you thought about your stomach and your thighs the whole time, wishing you were someone else, imagining he was wishing the same. How sex, for you, was just a way to be touched, a means to an end. How all you ever really wanted was to be touched. But men always want more. Eric, like any man, would eventually want more, more than you could give. And he would be disappointed, probably disgusted with you for leading him on. So you do one of the hardest things you've ever had to do. You delete his number from your phone again, but this time you also block it. How do you make love to a physicist? Forget your home training. Ditch the girdles your mother taught you to wear to harness your belly, your butt, your thighs, your freedom. God forbid something jiggle. God forbid you are soft and unbridled. Sleep naked. This is all your therapist's idea. At first, you're skeptical and resistant, but when she asks you to just humor her, because what's the downside? You can't think of one. You take long, hot, soapy showers, catching the water in your mouth until it spills out the corners. You rinse, step out, and rub lavender oil into your still damp skin from your scalp to the bottoms of your feet. It's winter, so you bundle up beneath blankets and explore. Use your hands to study the contours and curves of your body, your topography, to study them as fact without judgment. Pleasure yourself, but slowly, to savor and discover every morning and every night. On the weekends, you sleep in, then wake up and cook hearty comfort meals from scratch. No boxes, no cans, no fast food. Crab and kale omelets, roasted red potatoes, seafood linguine, ginger turmeric butternut squash soup, caramelized Brussels sprouts, roasted beet salad with goat cheese, coconut curries, beef wellington. You cook and paint and nap and stroke yourself to sleep at night. And as your body begins to feel like a home, your courage grows. It grows bigger than your mother's chastisement in the parking lot after service the first time you go to church unbound. Unbound. She asks why you aren't wearing a girdle, why you aren't sucking in the way she taught you 30 years ago, and how dare you come into the house of the Lord that way. Your mother, who complains of women in the church nowadays committing the sin of visible panty lines, reminds you that she raised you better than this. And you say, I'm tired of holding my breath. Then you promise you won't come to church that way again. And you keep your word because you won't go to church again at all. How do you make love to a physicist? You send him an apology 
in the form of one of the many sketches of him you have made in a silver frame. He doesn't respond right away. And you're okay with that. You knew the risk you ran, disappearing the way you did. But when he does reach out, you're both quiet on the phone for a long time before you say, it's just something I had to do for me. I didn't have the words for it then, and I'm not entirely sure I do now. I need you to use your words, though, he says. If we're going to do this, I need you to try. And I promise I won't ever do anything to make you regret trying. You try to remember the last time a man made you a promise. You decide it doesn't even matter. This man is making you one now. That's what matters. How do you make love to a physicist? On March 13th, the night before he comes to town, you stay up late, taking turns playing old-school hip-hop and R&B music videos, talking smack about who's going to get served at your dance-off, Googling your astrological compatibility, your Virgo to his Aquarius, laughing, giddy. Then, Pi Day arrives, and you shower while he's en route to the airport. Once he's in the air, his six-hour flight, including layover, feels to you like an eternity. His walk from the plane to your car at curbside takes as long as a pilgrimage. You imagine him kissing the western wall of Sabaro, weeping at the Cinnabon, leaving an offering at the feet of Auntie Anne. After he drops his luggage into your trunk and closes it, he turns to you and says, Finally. And you say, Finally. And he draws you into his arms and kisses you. His lips are as soft as you thought they would be. At your place, you make omelets and home fries, which he devours. His appetite is magnificent. Then, even though you're both exhausted and sleep-deprived, adrenaline kicks in and you win the dance-off by a mile. This man cannot dance to save his life, despite talking much shit. Where's my prize? You ask. Eric pulls you down to the couch and kisses you again. Oh, so we both win, you say. Here's a participation trophy. You go in for more kisses and you think, God, let him be forever. You both begin to doze. At some point, you wake up with your head in his lap and your mind in overdrive. You think about your art show opening tomorrow. You imagine looking at him from across the gallery floor as he looks at your work, introducing him to your girlfriends, your colleagues, your students, and your mother. You think that even if today and tomorrow were all there was, that would be okay. But then you hear your therapist's voice asking what you feel, not think right now. And you struggle at first to find the words before settling on warm, hopeful, joyous, full. Eric strokes your furrowed brows until your face relaxes. You say, Rumi said lovers don't finally meet somewhere. They're in each other all along. Do you believe that? I don't know, he says, then yawns, 
sounds like a mystic's take on faded love, and I don't believe in fate. You deflate a little. You want him to be the one you've been waiting for, and you want him to feel the inevitability of you as well. You want to be his default, not an option. You want the promises of a new religion. You chide yourself for walking too far ahead, for regressing into 80s song lyrics territory so soon. But then he says, The supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way recently sparked 75 times brighter over the course of a two-hour period, and twice as bright as it's ever been in the 20 years astronomers have been monitoring it. By now, you're used to him talking science, but you're not sure where he's going with this. One theory, he continues, is that the event was caused by a star about 15 times bigger than the sun getting close to the edge of the black hole, disturbing some gases, heating things up, increasing the infrared radiation coming from the edge. But get this, we observed that star getting close to the black hole about a year before we observed the effects on the black hole. That shows just how vast the universe is, how enormous the distance, you say. Exactly. Distances, plural. The distance between the star and the edge of the black hole and the distance between the black hole and the Earth. So, I say all of this to say that sometimes wheels are set in motion long before the spark is manifest. Is that the same thing as fate? I don't know, but I do know that rare, brilliant events take time. He sighs which is why I didn't trip when you didn't respond to my messages at first. I figured if you wanted me to leave you alone, you would have said so. But you didn't. Now, I did trip a little when you ghosted me, but... He shrugs and pulls you closer. I figured you had your reasons. How do you make love to a physicist? When he unbuttons your blouse and asks, are we going to be the type of people who sit around talking about roomy and black holes, or are we going to get naked? You answer, both. You stand up and pull down your skirt and panties. Rumi wrote of an intuitive love of God, and he was a Muslim, you say. But people like to strip away the Islam from his work. He runs his hands over your thighs, your breasts, your free stomach. How do you make love to a physicist? With your whole self, quivering, lush, unafraid. Shafilia, everyone. Such a beautiful story. And hey, when you're listening to this episode a second time around, try following along with Disha over at BarrelHouseMag.com. Just search for How to Make Love to a Physicist by Disha Filia. That's BarrelHouseMag.com. You can pick up a copy of her book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, at your favorite local bookseller. Also, thank you to Glasses for their songs, People, and I'll Never Change Your Mind. Go look up Glasses on Spotify. That's G-L-A-S-Y-S, Glasses, and listen to their EP, Defective Humanity. Thank you to West Virginia University Press. Thank you to Jordan Aaron for production help. And thank you, thank you, thank you to Tim Carplus for mixing. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. 
This month is Black History Month, and we're diving back in next Tuesday with Robert Jones Jr. Don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. Your friends, too. Connect with us on Instagram or on Twitter at StoryBoundPod. See you this Tuesday. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.